In today's first in-studio episode of Launch AMA, Sam Chan talks to Karam Varani, co-founder and chief education officer of Lighthouse Labs, one of Canada's first coding boot camps. They talk about what it's like being a pioneer in the field, Karam's personal journey back to education, and how they utilize Launch Academy as their accelerator. Let's check it out. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Launch AMA. I'm your host, Sam, as always. If you're joining us live, welcome. Um, some housekeeping rules as we do every single AMA. This is the very first one we're doing live in, I guess, in office. I wanted to say in studio, but that sounds too fancy. <laughs> um, as always, just some housekeeping items. If you're listening live, we want you to encourage you to type in your questions. This is an AMA. We're going to ask Chrome anything and everything. Um, so hopefully you don't have too many secrets. Um, but just type them in chat and I'm going to be monitoring that the whole time, the whole whole session, that whole hour we're going to be here for. Um, so just type them in as, as you guys. I encourage you to to look up Chrome's uh, LinkedIn right now. Just some of the interesting things that you might see from from his past, from his present, his different experiences as a founder. Um, but I've kind of I've kind of dropped the lead a little bit. Welcome, Chrome. Hey, nice to, um, nice Crumb's, to be here, Sam. Crumb's been a, a longtime supporter, also member, alumni, mentor, uh, many titles uh, at launch. Um, he's also a co-founder of Lighthouse Labs, and and we've known each other for, for a long, long time. So it's, it's this is overdue, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yeah, so just to kind of kick things started, why don't you just introduce yourself for everybody that hasn't met you either in person or, or throughout the throughout Vancouver, really? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Karam Varani. I also go with uh, by KV, uh, if that's easier for you. <laughs> um, and I've been I've been a software developer by trade for about fifteen plus years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I graduated from university back in two thousand five, uh, and I've been a kind of a, a developer who kind of fell backwards into entrepreneurship as well as education. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually uh, grew up in Pakistan and, and moved to Canada at the age of around 13. Okay. And I was lucky enough, actually, you know, uh, despite being in Pakistan, I actually had access to a computer in those days right. um, and started uh, and started uh, teaching and uh, tinkering with computers at the age of around 10. Um, so very fortunate to be playing wow. with computers and, and always knew I was going to get into software and technology. And I guess I, since I was teaching at a young age, I knew that I was going to get into education, I guess, subconsciously. And, and yeah. uh, that's kind of where that journey has taken me. So I'm an educator, entrepreneur, and technologist. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, my parents saw me tinkering with computers too, but I was just downloading Eminem off Napster. <laughs> <laughs> so very different journeys here. But like, no, I'd love to dive just more into to your story as, as we kind of get along. But uh, you know, what, what, you know, I know you most for is, of course, this is your work with, with Lighthouse Labs. Um, but before we kind of get started into to really what Lighthouse Labs is, like my understanding is what, before you started that, you had like a web dev agency. And I feel like there's a couple of people in the audience that can relate because a lot of these these companies, these startups, they start out as like, okay, well, I'm going to do services. I'm going to do, I'm going to, you know, build websites, web apps, mobile apps, whatever it is for other people. Um, this, can you describe us how that journey kind of went through? From when I guess first of all you started the agency and then you kind of moved on to to yeah. this. This is before we moved yeah. to Vancouver to okay. start Lighthouse Labs. So I'll start from before that. Yeah. In Toronto, my uh, co-founder and I, Josh Bortz, and I, we were both recovering entrepreneurs from failed startups. Mm -hmm. and this is actually not a you know uh, unconventional story where you're like, okay, I I 
I'm, I need money. I need a job. Uh, what yeah. do I do? Um, and so I started contracting as a developer, uh, you know, doing Ruby on Rails and front end development, yeah. things like that. And, uh, you know, of course, those things uh, accumulated between the two of us. And he was also recovering from his startup, um, very different startups. Uh, yeah. And so we, we started an agency, kind of fell backwards into that as well. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it was definitely running for a few years uh, quite well, but we never really grew it uh, too large because our goal was to actually not have an agency. Our goal was mm-hmm. to actually build product companies. Yeah, uh, and we thought that maybe the agency, the software consultancy, would actually help us identify good, yeah, verticals or good opportunities by working on various different projects. Yeah, um, never really materialized though. We never really agreed on a software product, a SaaS product mm-hmm. that we really wanted to build together. And so the agency kept growing, but we never really got that big. It was around twelve to fifteen people total. Um, and that gave me a lot of good perspective into what's happening in the world in terms of what different things are being built. We work yep. with various different small companies, startups, you know, where the founders are writing the checks, which is always yep. not a good situation to be in, in my <laughs> opinion, all the way to like larger healthcare, legal yeah. uh, and education companies that were our clients. So that mm-hmm. actually, uh, ended up being better for us in the tail years. And then we ended up actually, uh, exiting and selling that company mm-hmm. once Lighthouse becoming, uh, became, uh, more successful and, mm-hmm. and Josh needed to also focus on. You know, we were kind of divided and not yep. focused on one company. Uh, and about uh, three, four years ago, we we decided to kind of, you know, exit and, and sell yep. it to uh, essentially a competitor. And, and this is uh, the agency, right? It's the agency. Right. Yeah. Okay. So so before we dive too deep into life, I got a question here um, because I feel like your story resonates with a lot of the specifically technical co-founders. Um, you know, given what you know today, if your end goal is trying to build a product company, would you... St- but obviously you need to pay the bills. Like, like you kind of just described your situation. Would you still kind of do that agency to product transition? I haven't really seen the agency to product transition work very well for most agencies. Mm-hmm. It's very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they all have the dream of, or most of them have the dream of like, we will spin out products and yeah. there's only, I can only count so many on, on one hand yeah. that, that have actually successfully been both services company as well as spin out products. Yep. You know, Calendly is an example. There's other bigger ones, but mm-hmm. um, it's generally more rare. Um, so I yeah. would say, I would say, focus is probably the most important word to use <laughs> when it comes to what your goal is. And if your goal is to build a product and you have something in mind, then, yeah. then focus on that instead of something else that may give you the cash flow to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, it so is it a matter you, it, it of like time to focus on it? A and then B instead of A and B at the same time, half time, half Yeah, each. I mean, if you're like, okay, I'm just going to do this in the interim because I just can't raise money. I don't have the right. funds and I want to have a, a reserve fund to be able to then spend on and reinvest it into my own product idea. Great. Right. That's awesome. But then don't try to do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like we're, we're going to come back to this, but but talking more about, okay, so you sold the company. What was kind of the impetus for for starting Lighthouse, and what was kind of the driving force for for you and and Jeremy and some of those other guys? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the story is uh, so we started Lighthouse Labs just to give you give the audience a little bit of a background. We started it in Launch Academy mm-hmm. here uh, in Gastown. I mean, we're in a different yeah. location now, but in Vancouver uh, in 2013, October of 2013. Yeah. Um, so I think that was about a year after Launch Academy had kind yep. of started up. We started in 2012. Yeah. Um, and uh, I my myself and the other co-founders had moved from Toronto to Vancouver to start mm. it. 
Um, but the, the the actual history of why we started it and how we started it, it goes goes back a little bit. I had mentioned that I grew up with computers and started teaching at the age of 10, you know, how to, mm-hmm. how to use DOS and word processing back in the day with 386, 486 machines. I don't know if that even resonates with people. <laughs> Maybe. Pre, Pre-Pentium days, which is another word that's kind of a yeah, little bit Yeah, if you know what he's talking about, give us a <laughs> thumbs up in chat. Um, and so I already kind of started getting the the bug of teaching and yep. even in high school and university, I was TAing and mentoring and even helping yep. them build their curriculum for their computer science programs. So kind of volunteered my way through those, uh, those years and always knew I was going to get into teaching as a part-time thing and maybe as a retirement thing. Like to me, mm-hmm. it was like, I'll go work at like a college, technical college, and I'll try to change the system from within. Cause I, be- I definitely felt that education was broken. I have a computer science degree and I wouldn't trade it for anything else, but at the same time, I only used maybe like 20% of it in my entire right. career. The other 80% is still important, but it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't necessary to start my career. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I, I kind of felt a lot of those things emotionally. And I think a lot of people, everybody has a deep connection. Um, Ken Robinson says this really well mm. in his TED talk. Everybody has a deep connection with education. Nobody can say, I don't feel strongly about education. Yeah. The question is whether you want to get into it or not and actually try to fix it or improve it. Yeah. Um, and I definitely felt that pull. Um, but again, I didn't realize that we would be getting into a kind of a, a startup and a company mm-hmm. that would, that would try to change education for adults anyway. And that's yep. what Lighthouse Labs does. Maybe I should talk a little bit about what Lighthouse Labs does. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, a good time. So, so Lighthouse Labs, um, is a, a technology school. We, uh, we train, um, software developers, data scientists, cybersecurity experts, uh, in a very, very short, concise, um, time period. So we have mm-hmm. upskilling as well as reskilling programs mm-hmm. that, uh, allow people to shift careers, you know, in their twenties, thirties, forties, um, from whatever they were doing before into technology. Um, yep. and we've graduated thousands of individuals, uh, in that respect, um, in Canada, especially we yep. were across Canada. So anyway, it is the education space, but I wanted to kind of clarify that it's in adult learning, not like, you know, right. uh, there's, there's a lot of things in education. Um, and, and we are basically in a, in, in a, sh- in one word, we are school, right. Yep. Um, but yeah, to come back to your question in terms of the impetus, um, I actually consulted with the very first coding bootcamp, which is another word for, uh, yep. for at least one of our offerings. Yep. Uh, I consulted for the very first one in Toronto, which was the first one in Canada so as well. Bitmaker, Bit, Bitmaker Labs. Yep. Yeah. So they were, uh, I believe, five co-founders, all uh, Ivy grads. Yep. None of them were technical um, and they needed people to actually be the face of the program, build the curriculum, teach them the yeah. program. And so I did that part-time while running Functional Imperative, which was, of course, a juggle. Um, yep. But it was like so exciting and it was giving me new energy because I was getting kind of worn down with uh, Functional Imperative and the yep. services work. Um, and, and that inspired me with like new energy to get back into education, to be quite honest, I would credit them with at least giving me the, um, yeah, that kind of inspiration that I wanted to do that. Um, we didn't really necessarily, um, the bitmaker has since, uh, sold to general yep. assembly. Uh, actually long time one, ago. Of, one of the founders, Will Richmond is, is a member at launch now in Vancouver. Yeah. yeah Will's yeah. a good friend of mine actually. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they, um, they, uh, I worked with them pretty closely for a few cohorts, taught them, taught with them uh, uh, some really large cohorts, which is really cool. And then took about a year of hiatus from that and mm-hmm. then decided to start Lighthouse Labs okay. um, thereafter in, in Vancouver. Cool. And when you started, was it, was it like people were busting through the doors or, or maybe the concept no. wasn't even clear? No, like, it was actually pretty rocky at the start. Yeah. Yeah. We were expecting, you know, 20, 20, 30 person cohorts based on what we had seen right. in Toronto and Bitmaker. Right. And, uh, and just based on how, you know, there was a lot of buzz happening, especially at that time around coding boot camps. It was, yeah. it was definitely a thing, right. Especially in the U S. Yeah. Um, but we started with a cohort of, I think around seven people. 
yeah. lunch. And were um, you, like, I'm trying to kind of describe those early days. Like, were you actually like going through, talking through with each person, trying to convince them like, hey, like this could be a viable path for you. At the same time, I mean, like you're not responsible for their career, but this this is a change in a lot of those people's livelihoods. It's right? definitely, yeah, it's, yeah, this is no like, you know, that people are paying 10,000 yeah. 10, plus. Yeah, it's not the same as like you're yeah. selling, I don't know, an app or something. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not cheap to take a program yeah. and it's you're also the opportunity cost of of doing it, right? So mm-hmm. it's a career change. It's not life or death, but it is definitely like, you know, make or break for people. Yep. Um, and so we wanted to make sure we take that seriously. And so there were long conversations in the admission cycle. We were rejecting yep. people, accepting people and so on, right? Uh, and we still continue to do that. But any case, in any case, um, definitely rocky start where we yep. had like, in the first six months, we thought we were going to go bankrupt mm-hmm. um, based on kind of the low numbers that we were seeing. So the uptake was definitely slow. And maybe that's part of, you know, the, the lower population of the West Coast in yep. Canada versus the East Coast. But also I think just, it was the climate at the time. Yeah. And um, I, I'm uh, pushing ahead a little bit, but I know one of the main things with Lighthouse that was that was novel to me at the time when I first heard about Lighthouse is kind of that career services arc of, of the program. It's not, it, I don't want to say just education, but it's not just the courses, but you, you really put in a lot of effort, time and money into investing into, hey, what happens once your students graduate? Um, can you just describe that a little bit? And then I have a follow-up question from the audience yeah. here. We, I was really inspired by what ThoughtBot was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, ThoughtBot's a, a very influential company, especially in the uh, technology uh, space, uh, mm-hmm. actually an agency, uh, but yeah. a very successful one that's actually also produced products. And they have really good literature on how they, what they believe in. And one of the things that they did was they were bringing on very junior talent, so proto-juniors, if you will, um, for about $500 a week at the time. Um, so very low salary as well, and mm-hmm. kind of training them on the job, kind of that apprenticeship model. Yep. And at the time, boot camps weren't really doing this. They were essentially kind of like, you graduate, we're going to help you a little bit by connecting you with some of our network. And then it's up to you to find a job. Yep. And, and you know, go f- try to find a $50,000, $60,000 junior developer job at the time, mm. of course. Mm. Um, and th- that was kind of mixed success. And what we, yep. ch- we changed that up quite a bit. Uh, we decided to invest heavily in our career services team mm-hmm. uh, and actually build that um, from day one and actually aim for a hundred percent placement essentially. Um, not that we are placing them. We're not guaranteeing anything, mm-hmm. um, but essentially trying to get them to um, a internship type role mm-hmm. where that transitions into a proper full-time junior kind of salary and beyond. And we were very successful with that. Even today yep. we're at like 90 plus percent of our I remember you were riding the 100 for years. Yeah. Yeah. You can only go one way once you're at 100, <laughs> but um, you know, still being at 90% plus within yep. 180 days is phenomenal um, yep. in terms of what we've been able to accomplish. And, and we're well recognized, not just in Canada, but in North America for our statistics and our career trajectory reports. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and the question here I have here from Rasul is what are the companies you partner with for, for job search for your graduates? Like, you know, obviously we're talking to an audience of founders right now. They want to get involved with, with potentially working with your students or, or internships or whatnot, yeah. or straight out hiring them full time. Yeah. What, what's kind of that process like from their vantage point? So yeah, is the question about which companies or the question about the process? Um, I think a little bit of both. Okay. A little bit of both. So in terms of the companies, uh, various companies across Canada, mm-hmm. um, a lot of them are small, a lot of them are startups, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because mm-hmm. you can, you know, our, our graduates are generalists, right? Whether they're web or data or cyber, mm-hmm. uh, especially on the web and data side, um, we find a lot of startups, mid-sized companies in Canada hiring them, mm-hmm. uh, names, 
you know, uh, some of them are, have been acquired or, or moved on. But one of the early kind of supporters of our uh, graduates was a company, actually a launch company called Retsley. Mm-hmm. Um, they were acquired by Zillow. Uh, they were pretty much staffed completely. <laughs> their entire technology team was Lighthouse grads. And then of nice. course, a few seniors of their own. Um, and, and also they mentored, uh, and taught with our program as well. Yeah. We have Thinkific locally that, uh, has hired quite a few grads, yeah. uh, you know, more, more well-known names like Telus, Shopify, Rogers. Mm-hmm. These are some of the bigger kind of brands that uh, span all across all verticals that, mm-hmm. that, uh, that work with us. So uh, those are the kind of companies it yep. spans all sizes and shapes. Um, not all of them are technology companies necessarily either. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mech is an example of a company that's hired Lighthouse grads. Um, yep. And then in the other question, part of the question, I guess, was the process. Yeah, the process yeah like, is, as a founder. Or yeah, a so we actually company. have students graduating every month. That's quite unique. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't graduate just, you know, every two months or every year. And so every month there's a new cohort starting and every month there's a new batch of graduates graduating. And the culmination of what they've worked on is presented at Demo Day. So one of the easiest ways to get involved is on a Thursday every month, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, a demo day that all of our uh, grads from that batch of cohorts, data, web, and cyber will present. Um, and so it's a very easy now, of course, it's all remote. Um, yep. So easy to just jump onto a Zoom call and it's not even a Zoom call, it's hop in actually. Um, and uh, and just kind of stay, like look at what the kind of talent we're graduating, what they've been working on for their capstone project. But then of course, engaging our career services team uh, right. across Canada, we have uh, people across Canada who work with us full time to quarterback mm-hmm. our, our graduates into these roles. And so they have that network. So reaching out to them and saying, what, this is what I'm looking for. Then they will give you a subset of here's some graduates you can interview and here's their resumes and, and what they're looking for. for so sure. they kind of white glove that experience with no matter what size of company you're, you are. Awesome. Yeah. And if you're a launch member listening to this, like, like, you know, Crumb is around where we can get you connected with their career services team. That's not an issue. Just, just let, let me know, let Samson know. Um, and we can, we can get that done. Um, that's, that's a great question. Another question here, and this is more on the education side from Raf, is how do you choose and evolve what you teach in the Lighthouse curriculum? Which is, I think, really interesting. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, one of the first things we, we looked at. Uh, another difference in our model is that it's what I call community-driven education. Mm-hmm. So we bring in existing developers, data scientists, and cybersecurity experts um, who are working professionals. They're not teachers. They're actually developers, makers, technologists who then teach with us part-time, whether it's lecturing, you know, doing mock technical interviews, assessment, uh, you know, of course, mentoring as well in terms of one-on-one help when someone's stuck on something. And so we have about 300 um, part-time trainers, teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, they're technologists who are teaching part-time uh, and they're enthusiastic about, you know, uh, paying it forward essentially, yep. right? Um, and so, of course, they're interested in the curriculum also being the right thing because they don't want to be teaching things that they're not, they're, they're actually our biggest employer in a way. That pool of mentors, they're also doing this because they also get access to talent um, mm. and they get to identify talent early, right? There's no, there's no, um, there's no shaking that reality, right? Mm-hmm. So they, um, they are actually also advisors. Uh, we have a smaller pool of advisors that whether it's a React or Ruby on Rails or you know, something happening in the Python ecosystem yep. or cybersecurity, they, they constantly advise us on what's changing. And there's a big change coming down with, with React. Um, mm-hmm. Right now with React 18, we're looking at like, how are we adapting our curriculum to that? And we've always kept on top of 
things like that. When React switched to to functional components and hooks, we had to completely overhaul our curriculum on that side to be able wow. to do that. When we started, we were very much a eight week Ruby on Rails web bootcamp. That's how we identified ourselves. We just we were just that one program. Yeah. Today, of course, we have many, but we also pivoted a few years afterwards into a more Node centric, yeah. JavaScript centric curriculum. Still kept the Ruby on Rails side, but that was all to do with the shifting landscape of software development and web development, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the answer is the answer in short is really our community of teachers are also our community of advisors and right. also subject matter experts that even help us write new assignments, new activities and, and do that. Um, we actually manage our entire curriculum in, in GitHub. Um, we're using wow. a software development workflow in how we manage our curriculum in, in Markdown content. So it allows us to easily open pull requests and even somebody who is not part of our core team mm-hmm. can open up a PR and submit a change to, to, to fix something in the curriculum. Oh, wow. And yeah. that like, that's, ever evolving right yeah there's constant it's just like an open source project or yeah. you know of course not open source but it's it's it has that contributor circle right. so there's the core team but then there's also a larger pool of contributors right. who are our mentors as well that can then just submit issues or, or prs on github yeah and then and i think i feel like we've had this part of this conversation in the past because one of the things with with traditional education is is the speed at which curriculums are made and remade yeah no, right it's, it's broken it's very broken. It takes years sometimes, not sometimes, actually a lot of the times for things to change. And it's not any one person that like, it's not like the structure is like, Oh, I don't want to be up to speed. It's just whatever the bureaucracy is. is, Our curriculum is really, it's about the learning journey. And it's not even that like we write everything from scratch. We reference existing videos, content, written articles, blog posts. And so those links break actually. That's so the biggest change that we have to do is like, oh, this blog post is no longer relevant. Mm. It's actually misteaching, or this one's actually a complete 404 link. Um, and so that that also forces us to keep having to update our curriculum as well. Yeah. And yeah, we don't use textbooks. <laughs> That's just not a thing anymore. <laughs> don't burn and, the paper. And it hasn't been since we, since we started. Yeah. I mean, we're we're nine years in nine years in now, right? That's right. Yeah, we're gonna hit our turn um, next year. And, and as we understand, you mentioned you're, you're across the country, uh, you have remote online programs. What are the challenges that you face setting that up and how does it compare to when you had in-person classes? Yeah, so it's definitely been very different. Um, we actually were very technology focused. So compared to our other, let's call them competitors, um, we, we, and we, we keep in touch with them. Um, we actually struggled the least when it came to going uh, in 2019 um, to go from in-person to remote because we already yep. had a lot of the interaction actually um, happening through digital kind of means. So yep. for example, in the lab setting that was in person, students wouldn't raise their hands when they were stuck on something, which happened multiple times a day. It was by design. They would actually click a button in the custom <laughs> learning management system that we've developed with our students, have to, our grads yep. have developed. Um, and, and so there was already a queue system built in and we had already expanded across Canada. So we already had to deal with like streaming lectures, getting mentorship from someone in Victoria while you're in Vancouver or vice versa, right? We had six different locations across Canada already. So we had already experienced kind of what that hybrid model is like. Um, and that allowed us to actually within a, essentially a weekend, uh, with a few tweaks, um, actually go, go fully remote and not actually our NPS climbed a little bit. Uh, whereas most companies, most, especially education, yeah. right, traditional, especially NPS tanked yeah. because uh, people were just like not happy with how these companies were executing on remote uh, education. Whereas with us, the expectations probably of students coming in was lower and mm. we were still able to deliver on the outcomes because that's what matters, right? Ultimately yep. the experience of course matters hundred percent. Yeah. But for the people that are coming in for reskilling or even upskilling, they care about their career outcomes. Yep. 
And so if you're able to deliver on those and keep that up, in fact, in, in some ways, COVID helped that, right? Yeah. Uh, as you can imagine, being able to now work anywhere in Canada, being able to be remote and opening up the borders even to the US a lot more, yeah. our, our employment stats actually have gone up, not down as a result. Um, and also, of course, the program itself. Um, now there's people that can access the accessibility is the other problem with, yeah. uh, with, with programs like ours. Like, yes, there's the cost, but also like, oh, it's only in Vancouver, Calgary, et cetera, et cetera. But now you could be on Galliano Island. You yep. could be in, you could be in Hope BC and you could take our program. And uh, that really yep. uh, has, has opened the doors to accessibility of our program. Yeah, no, I can definitely relate to that because like launch ourselves, we pr now pride ourselves in 2019, we decided to become a virtual first company. Hence, you know, we're in a different office now. And obviously like our, you know, our old Gastown office is much, much larger. Um, but that main thing is, is that globalness and the accessibility factor, right? Like time zones is always still going to be an issue. So it's never like, oh, just because you're remote means you're everything for everybody. Um, but it allows people like you, like even if you're on a work trip, if you're somewhere else, you can still participate or learn or in, in your case, taste classes or something like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, exactly. And uh, I guess an extension of that question is, do you also run programs outside of, of Canada right now, either physical or online? And I guess it's really hinting to that, that kind of time zone issue. Like how do you cater to needs of people in different locations? Yeah. So right now we are in the North American time zone. Uh, we do partner with universities, something I didn't mention. Um, <laughs> um, we partner with higher ed and, and help them offer yep. more accelerated programs that are more skillful because theoretical. Um, and uh, we don't have that many partnerships. There's about yep. five, six universities that we partner with. And one of them's in Australia and one of them's uh, in the US. So we are starting to see um, more kind of uh, entryway into those markets. Mm. Um, but yeah, in terms of time zone, we are definitely focused. Um, we're definitely focused. We are trying to build actually our mentor pool internationally so that we could have 24 seven coverage. Mm. So when somebody's stuck on something, you know, the other thing that that's remote work has opened up is maybe they don't want to work in the hours that we've kind of currently set, which is like your, you know, 9am yep. till, till 9pm actually is our, is our hours, which is kind of already quite a bit. But we actually were trying to aim for 24-7, which means actually having mentors who can jump on a one-on-one -on -one chat. When you're stuck on something, you click a button within a minute, somebody from, you know, uh, Asia can jump on and help you if you're happening, if you're just a, a night owl. Yep. And doing something at 2 a.m. Devs right? and night owls seem to be a common recurrence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. For sure. Um, one of the things I want to dive a little bit deeper into is, 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 you know, we talked a little bit about career services, career advising. And because I know, again, our audience is a lot of founders, a lot of companies that are trying to trying to hire, trying to build the right team. Sometimes it's core teams. Sometimes it's, it's you know, they're growing and scaling. Um, what kind of recommendations do you have for them as they set out to hire um, from a let's talk about the branding standpoint first. Right. Because you, you talked about some of your alumni, even just in the Lighthouse marketplace itself, like forget about all the other places that you're competing with for for trying to hire. Um, you talked about like, you know, Amazon and, and Thinkific and all these other kind of companies that, you know, are right there for your students to choose from. What kind of stands out for them to attract a company, especially when maybe you don't have the biggest pocketbooks? Yeah. I, you know, um, our grads are not all of them, first of all, want to go work at these large Shopify's mm -hmm. and Amazons of the world. Um, and second, we hire our own grads, mm -hmm. um, and so we have quite a bit of insight, not only through their learning journey, but also yep. in terms of what they are looking for in terms of 
I mean, they is a generalization, but what a lot of them are looking for in terms of their first um, right. experience you know, experience after graduating. And I would say if I were to put it in one word, they're looking for mentorship. Mm-hmm. They're looking, they're not interested in like, oh, but I can make this much money here, $5,000 more at this company or $10,000 more at Shopify than I can at the startup. They really want to know about their growth path and their, um, and their mentorship along the way. So if, if you're just, you know, oh, we don't have any developers, you're going to be the first and you have to do all of the work. That's going to probably scare away some of our grads, yeah. even if they are capable of doing that. And to be honest, you should probably have an intermediate senior developer that's doing a lot of that architecture and the junior developer to not to be learning from that, but not necessarily be driving that forward. Yeah. Uh, definitely seen that mistake uh, a few times. And so I would say like, ideally you already have a little bit of the talent pool and yep. then you want to augment that talent pool by bringing on people that can learn really, really quickly as they've shown in the program and can, yep. can hustle. Um, and really talk about like your mentorship system. And I think that's something that we've done very successfully, you know, of course as a school, but also with our employees in terms of in our technology team, there's quite a bit of like cross collaboration and mentorship. And it's not like seniors mentoring juniors or anything like that. There's actually more of a, like a graph than a tree structure mm-hmm. when it comes to how we actually collaborate and, and um, make decisions and, and review each other's work. Mm-hmm. And then reversely, I love that you're, you know, you're talking about, you know, you guys hire your own students all the time. What's the kind of like indicators or, or characteristics? Because I'll be honest, everybody that goes through the same program in theory has the same skill set. Yeah. Actually um, ends up being very different yeah, because so, the, 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 our, our general, I mean, of, of course I'm, I'm generalizing, yeah. but our audience is um, in terms of graduates, they're around mid twenties to mid forties. Right. Right. Um, With a big chunk of them being 23 to 32. Right. Um, These are early career to mid career. And for those that are especially like more in the mid career side of, of things, Mm -hmm. they have a background in something else. Um, They've Mm -hmm. worked for 10 years professionally as a financial analyst, as an accountant, as a musician, Mm -hmm. whatever. Right. Um, And so they're bringing a lot of that skill set with them. Mm -hmm. Funny enough, uh, musicians make for great software developers. First of all, you wouldn't think you wouldn't, you wouldn't have thought so. Um, But there is quite a bit of overlap there. I've noticed anyway. Um, And, and so, um, you know, there's, there's that variation from Mm -hmm. their CV. Isn't just like, here's what I did in the program. I worked on these projects and here it is. They've already brought like, um, you know, example is like a senior accountant from Deloitte. Right. Right. Um, Well, they already have a lot of understanding and how to work in a corporate environment. Right. Um, as well as like, um, like somebody who's an accountant obviously can be very well suited to go into a fintech company, for example, and, and be a technologist there. Mm-hmm. Right. So are you saying that even in, um, even like, even in these kind of developer hires, you're not just looking for, okay, not, I don't, I don't want to diminish it to just like, what, what are the coding bases or what are the languages they know? But like, you're actually more emphasizing on what else is on the resume. Yeah. I'd say it's a bit both. Right. And, and to be honest, we don't, we, we are very careful in telling our students and our employers that we are not a node, like for our web bootcamp, we're not a node program or a React mm-hmm. program or a Ruby on Rails program. We are teaching with those tools and our students are very aware that like, and especially for their final project, they'll experiment with libraries and frameworks that they have not used. They'll mm-hmm. step outside their comfort zone to prove that they're, even within that 12-week program, that immersive program, yep. for that last two weeks, they're willing to actually take a risk and try to learn something new and potentially fail. To, to deliver on some amazing presentation on demo day, but they don't just care about that presentation on demo day. They care yep. about that. Like, I want to learn this thing. And yes, I've learned these things in the program, 
But I really want to learn that library because I think it's really interesting and it compares mm. with React, but it's different. Um, and so our students are very hungry for like wanting to do beyond just what's on there, what's in the program, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do give them a lot of leeway in especially that kind of final project to do to learn new things instead of just um, the same technologies that they've learned in the first 10 weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And so so I think I think a situational question I had written down here somewhere was was more about like how to how to build and scale you know companies right so so if you're a founder today you've just you know you've raised a pre-seed or something you have you have a little bit of money how are you building that core team out at what point does looking at something like lighthouse or or a different different institution could be could be trad education or whatever junior developers that kind of stuff how do you see that team the the tech team i think i was i will emphasize on scaling out yeah. Um, am I assuming that they're a Canadian company? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So I guess a little bit of a disclaimer before I answer that is I don't have experience raising money. Lighthouse mm-hmm. Labs doesn't have um, investors or bootstrapped. Mm-hmm. And so our journey has been one that we've had to be very financially stable and sound. And there've definitely been years where we've had to worry about our existence, our right. existential crisis financially. So cash flow management has been definitely something that's in our DNA from day mm-hmm. one. Um we have, you know, we've had to secure debt uh, and BDC has been great in helping us mm-hmm. um, with, with our growth needs as well as like in cases where it was just like we needed to weather a storm. Um, and, and so I think, you know, don't just think about um, raising money from um, investors. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, other facilities in Canada that are available. Um, we, we make heavy use of things like IRAP and Shred, um, these um, government um, yep. dollars that can be spent towards technology programs, mm-hmm. uh, technology companies. Um, and so those are things to look into from day one. There's a lot yep. of free money essentially that's floating around yep. from the government that people don't know about. Um, there's programs like Digital Skills for Youth, which actually Lighthouse Labs is a provider of, which mm-hmm. is government dollars being distributed through companies like Lighthouse Labs to allow youth, which is like people under 35, I believe it is. So yep. not really youth in, you know, in most people's minds. Uh, to be employed in digital skills. So you could actually hire a Lighthouse grad or a grad from another program as a developer, data scientist, whatever, and basically have their salary paid for for the first six months, along with some training paid for as well. So there's all of these interesting things, but it requires time and an investment to to research them. So uh, that takes away from focusing on product, unfortunately. (laughs) So you do have to kind of balance those two in terms of cash flow as well as focusing on product development. Yep. but I guess like more holistically in your question, you know, I talked about focus earlier. Yep. Not being too distracted and saying yes to everything. Um, you know, 500K doesn't go a long way these days, <laughs> right? Like 500K today is like raising 100K 10 yep. years ago, right? Um, and so due to inflation, and I think that's going to get even more and more uh, drastic. Mm-hmm. And we've known, we've seen software developer and just general technologist salaries skyrocket. Yep. Um, so you have to kind of be really financially um, you know, responsible when it comes to spending and that runway is pretty short. Yep. And so, yes, you want to make use of junior talent, but it can't just be junior talent either because then you may not be building the right thing in the right way. Right. Um, so it is a balancing act. I think balance and focus are probably the, the things that are, yep. that come to mind. And the opposite of focus is distractions, right? Like, yeah. and I know we, we definitely bring different government officials in and different programs and we talk about IRAP and, and at times and those other things, yeah. but I, th- I think the key is, and what I'm trying to derive from you is, is like, it depends on what your objectives are at that time, right? Like if fundraising is a distraction, 
don't fundraise yeah. at the same time. If IRAP is you're spending 80% of your time filling in IRAP forms, maybe that's not the way to go and you need to spend more time on product. But there's, there's agencies that can help with that, right? We don't mm-hmm. ever do those things alone. Um, mm-hmm. We work with, you know, various agencies, uh, yep. you know, there's boost capital, et cetera, that help with shred, yep. you know, for example. Um, and so that can help alleviate the burden, but you kind of have to plan ahead. You have to mm-hmm. know about them. If you do try to do it reactively, it ends up being more work. If you're, if you're tracking your hours and your experiments, early on, then you don't have to do all of that homework at the end to be able to file a claim. Right? Yep. So those things matter. Um, but of course they require a little bit of foresight and, and knowledge. Yep. That's what I'm trying to kind of get ahead of here. Um, but yeah, of course it, it does matter uh, what you're trying to build as well. For us, it was very much, you know, uh, we needed to stay break even or like slightly lossy yep. um, as opposed to like just, you know, burn the boats and like, there's no looking back, yeah. just like full steam ahead and we're either do or die. Like we just didn't have that option because we actually, you know, this is a little bit maybe TMI, but we had not just personal, we just, we didn't just have loans. We actually had personally guaranteed loans. Mm-hmm. So if Lighthouse had gone bankrupt, we would have be, we would be out a lot of money that we would personally owe banks. Yeah. Uh, and that was definitely very scary for us. Yeah, for sure. And looks like it's working out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's been okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but speaking of, I I feel like one of the questions that, that, that people want to know about is is that kind of fundraising versus bootstrapping, right? Like may and maybe the, we can only talk about more specific to, to your own situation, but was that like a big consideration or or you know We you tried just, actually, we tried yeah. going to the VC route. Yeah. Um, but we're just not a model of VCs we want to touch. Mm. And not just during this kind of bear market, but just in general. Mm-hmm. Um so for us, uh, it's been more about um, you know, debt capital. Yep. Uh, and kind of taking a lot of that risk ourselves and kind of, we're not the 10X kind of company where, uh, where school, we have to focus on outcomes, not just like, uh, you know, how do you 10X this? Uh, right. Because then you just end up being a MOOC, um, right. massively online open course. Um, there's many out there and they have five to 10. That's actually like a term MOOCs. MOOCs. Yeah. And that's and, really funny. Yeah. It's a weird term. And, and these, you know, your, you know, your um, edX and, you know, your yep. audacities of the world. And um, they, uh, they're successful in some ways, but their outcomes are much lower and they know that mm-hmm. um, we were just not in that space. And and so for us, it's not, it's not a very like uh, sexy, mo- financially sexy model for, um, for investors. Right. Um, but that's okay. We're, we're kind of focused on our steady growth um, yep. and, and, you know, each business has a very different persona. Not every business is destined for, for VC money. And I'm yep. actually glad that that didn't end up being a thing for us because it would have put very different pressures on us. For sure. For sure. Um, you, you kind of hinted at it, but like some things we're definitely seeing in the market right now is, is I I guess before developer salaries were skyrocketing, as you mentioned, at the same time, the, the tech market has been saying, has been taking a pretty big hit. How, as a founder are, I guess, are you navigating these waters and what are you seeing? Like maybe some of the other product companies, maybe you work with, what are, what is everybody doing? So I actually um, do some advisory work with other startups as well as like, mm. you know, micro angel kind of investments mm-hmm. and just friends, you know, in, in the Canadian space anyway, that, yep. that are, you have easily either re- recently raised money or in the process of trying to raise money from VCs. And definitely what you're reading online in terms of, you know, VCs being very um, gun shy of, of making uh, decisions mm-hmm. and, uh, and kind of holding back and watching is something that I am hearing about quite a bit like yep. firsthand even though I don't have experience successfully raising money, um, I do see that from colleagues and friends. Yeah. Um, and so definitely I'm hearing that 
you know, one company, uh, as an example, um, went out and talked to a whole bunch of different VCs as for their first kind of pre-seed seed round, not yeah. asking for much and actually, um, quite successful in terms of their cash flow and what they've been able to accomplish. They've been around for a year and a half. Um, yeah, they just didn't get that kind of response from VCs that they thought they would, you know, blow it out of the water, yep. uh, given their numbers and their projections. But, uh, VCs didn't, they pushed back. And so they've decided to just raise from angels. So they decided like, uh, I think four or 500 K us just from their net angel network. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fortunate enough that they have that kind of a network, but, um, there are definitely companies that are now reevaluating how they're raising money, who they're raising money from, mm-hmm. um, and, and also just how long it will take and what the, what the valuations will look like. Yep. Um, and so there is, there is definitely this year, I would say, who knows what next year looks like. You know, it, it's a very unpredictable time right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, nobody, I don't think people predicted that post like during COVID that there would be a very, you know, bull market. <laughs> um, but though that, that government, those government dollars kind of, I think, um, delayed the inevitable as you, we see from big, you know, big write-ups from Sequoia and A16, they're talking about how like, okay, now, now there is no lifeline and there is likely going to be a pretty long, you know, five year out kind of bear market. Um, and definitely I can't, I can't, I don't necessarily have the ability to say yes or no to that, but um, at least right now there's quite a bit of regression in terms of um, valuations um, and just the willingness for VCs at least to invest. Um, mm-hmm. So something to watch out for. I think, I think founders make for really good investors. So that's, a, that's one thing to note is like having, uh, making connections with founders who have exited, mm-hmm. um, not even necessarily big exits, um, put in like, you know, 20, 30, 40 K kind of checks into yep. your business as like, you know, um, smaller like LPs into your own yep. like little fund uh, is definitely something I'm seeing quite a bit of success in. Um, and founders make for really good, like they're a lot more empathetic towards um, yep. other founders uh, as opposed to, you know, your typical kind of M&A uh, right. VC types. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I have another question here, just diving back a little bit about uh, mentorship in other markets. Uh, as you build out mentorship in students in other markets, are you seeing any challenges adapting to the needs of different markets, whether it's culturally or the job market in those specific spaces? Um, maybe emphasis on different technologies. Yeah, I would say that um, I think we probably don't have enough insight there. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely across Canada, there's different needs as well, right? Yep. So even even among cities, there's different kind of preferences to what kind of stocks they hire for. Mm-hmm. But honestly, COVID in the last two, three years has really changed that dynamic as well because you could now be based in Vancouver, but a lot of our alumni, like I, I looked, uh, I was just scanning some of our alumni for five, eight years out. A lot of them don't work for Canadian companies anymore, which I, I understand there's that brain drain of like, yep. they just work for SF, yep. you know, or or other kind of, new, on the East Coast, there's a lot of New York companies that end up hiring our grads. They're still based in Vancouver, but they're just working remotely. Yep. Um, and that's not just true of our grads. That's just true of Canadian talent in general. So there is that yep. kind of brain drain that's happening, which makes things harder for us. But that's not the question, I suppose. It's really more yep. about the cultural. I think it's more about the like, there's a lot of pressures on the Canadian economy, yep. given the dollar and given uh, the the needs, the technology kind of gap yep. in the US. Uh, I think that's a challenge that we haven't really talked about that kind of is cultural, mm-hmm. um, but more kind of geopolitical. Yep. Uh, but in terms of like international, we just don't, we haven't gone into like, international markets with that kind of yet. Right. So I can't really speak to that too much. Mm -hmm. And then I guess reversely, because I know we have a lot of companies listening on online right now that 
that are looking to come into this Canadian market. And obviously they come from different ethnicities and cultures and, and backgrounds where they're used to doing business. What kind of advice would you have for, for an understanding of, of like the Canadian market and, and what maybe what our strengths are and, and maybe some, some potential challenges that you've gone through? It's a really good question. Um, Canada, Canada is an interesting experiment in multi, multiculturalism that it, compared to many other countries out there is, is actually successful at, mm -hmm. um, at, at that experiment. And so we see that, of course, in various companies here where there is quite a bit of um, diversity in the company. Um, I think, you know, uh, an easy example is um, gender pronouns. Uh, mm -hmm. Getting comfortable with saying they instead of he or she mm -hmm. is something that is actually pretty natural for a, a, a English as a first language speaker. Yep. But if there's somebody from another country where they're having to translate to be able to speak to English, yep. speak English in their head, it's going to be harder for them to, to think in terms of, if, sometimes it's just he instead of a she, right? Because some cultures don't even have a he, she separation. Yep. And then there's the, you throw in a they and they're like, it's, it's hard, right? Yep. And so just being understanding towards that instead of being uh, critical towards it. Mm. Uh, I think just that understanding of different cultures and their experiences is important. And also I think remote work has uh, made it harder to be, um, to make connection, right? Yep. And so how do you, you have to be deliberate at um, allowing for social connection to happen in a remote environment. So remote mm -hmm. meetings, it's very easy to just be like, all right. Like when you see someone face to face, yep. you can, you know, you can shoot the shit a little bit, right? Yep. Uh, it's harder to do that when you're on a, on a Zoom call, but you have to make that effort. It's yep. just that we are not, it's not going to be harder for a, somebody who's grown up on Zoom calls. It's harder for us yep. because we are transitioning, right? Yep. Um, we're not natives to online meetings, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so for us, we have to make a deliberate attempt, whereas somebody who's currently in their teens and is going to work in a very remote environment, for them, it'll be no problem at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so I make a deliberate effort in, within Lighthouse to just make sure that we are spending uh, time talking about life and sharing our life things mm -hmm. as well, instead of just um, instead of just work talk. So for yep. me, like especially these like recurring meetings, weekly meeting, meetings, and check-ins, they're not about updates. Yep. And if they are about updates, they're actually about life updates. Um, like what's going on in your life? What's what's an interesting accomplishment that you've done personally, yep. right? And and trying to have organic conversations through that. And guess what happens there? Through that, you actually get to have more empathy towards different cultures and how people work. Right. Yep. If you're just really really focused on work, you're actually not going to build that empathy. Um, yep. Uh, that, that, that that's more of the cultural differences. Yeah. And I, I've definitely experienced like both sides of the coin. Like I know there's some countries where, where like, let's say you and I would have an hour call, like the first half hour is dedicated to just catching up and, and just small talk and, yeah. and whatnot. Right. Yeah. And that that's super normal for them. And they're very happy to be like their one hour meeting. They already carved out two hours for it because you know, that that's just culture. Yep. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, talking to a couple of the companies that have arrived, like that doesn't always seem to be the case, right? Like one hour is one hour, 30 minutes is 30 minutes. Um, there's also something else I want to talk about in terms of difference in culture, which is something that came to my attention while I was reading Hacker News. I didn't know about this thing. It's called the Power Distance Index. Have you heard of this? No. PDI. Um, basically there's been this study which looks at various different uh, countries and how they, how their people, uh, as how they people behave with how they be, how their people behave and perceive power. Um, and it translates to how we interact, of course, as well. So uh, a country, just to throw an example out there, like Israel, will 
have a very different behavior when they're actually interacting at work than a country like, like than an American or a Canadian. Um, and so being able to recognize, for example, someone's directness or like the politeness not being there is really just a difference in culture versus like they're rude. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so there's always these jokes about like Germans or Austrians, et cetera, around like, you know, how direct they are. Mm. Right. Um, and that can feel, it can feel kind of threatening or offensive to others uh, who are not used to that kind of, um, yep. that kind of way of communicating. So I think just even awareness of that within a company that is very multicultural is important so that you're yep. not, so you're able to still collaborate and communicate and not be offended or worry about offending someone yep. uh, in that process. Yeah. I think transparency to intention is, is also really important. Um, like, like I, I'm the worst at this because like I, I say things like guys and dudes a lot. Um, I don't mean that in a general way but it's a, but it's a bad habit it's right? a bad habit yeah. exactly yeah. um so so like you know it's it 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 happens and and i think having your intentions open helps transition those those changes right yeah. um talking about kind of connecting in with i guess specifically your team what would you say some of your key successes and failures from a community perspective are and i guess the the big question is if you could change what would you do really interesting question um i think i think the fact that we actually started off with a very at launch academy instead of our own space and actually really bought into not just for like a marketing or brand thing but really Mm -hmm. bought into like the community is our gateway to success yeah by integrating the community not just for like mentoring with us but also hiring from us as a result it's kind of a a symbiotic relationship Mm -hmm. in education like it's a no-brainer really like, why is it that a student has to enter the community after they graduate? They should be joining the community when they enter the program, right? So being integrated into the community allows our students to be involved there. And that really allowed us to grow in ways across Canada uh, and really even during the going remote uh, mm-hmm. phase uh, quite a bit. Um, so I would say like our community integration um, really, really paid off. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we didn't have a mission or a vision for the first like five years of our existence, we should have had one sooner. Mm-hmm. I think we would have been even more successful had we said, what are we? Because we basically started off saying like, there's a need, we need to st- train software developers. And that's what like KV Kurum knows how to do. Let's, you know, from his previous experience, let's build that program out. And we had that program for, as our flagship program for quite a while. And we didn't really know, like, what are we actually trying to solve at a, you know, at a global scale or at a Canadian yeah. scale? Um, and so it took us a long time before we actually sat down and lots of hours and arguing before we nailed down kind of a mission and a vision. And one thing I would say, I think many startups do this better, but I would still say that make a conscious effort to establish that. Even mm-hmm. if you're not raising and you don't need it on a deck, have that written down and as use it as a guiding principle. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I know some companies don't always have a day one, right? No, no, maybe not even year one. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it helps you kind of decide on what you're saying yes to and no to. But don't just stop at the mission and vision. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what are the, then what is the strategies below that? You mm-hmm. know, and then below the strategies, what are your OKRs for that, for that quarter or for that year? Mm-hmm. Um, these are things that like Google and bigger companies do, but they're not that much overhead to do at a smaller scale, mm-hmm. right? For a, for a more focused company. It actually is very, very important. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess, I guess this is the last question I will end up with because, because, you know, personally you're, you're so great at, at, at understanding the the idea of giving back, the idea of giving mentorship, of passing along, um, and 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 for those that are, are don't have context, like Karam is is one of our launch captains here, which means you know he interacts with our companies, he's 
he's here on this AMA right now and, and he participates in different ways through our community. Um, but, but I think as a lot of times is, is I'm trying to stand from like a founder's perspective. Like it's a little bit like I'm really busy, you know, building whatever it is I'm trying to build right now. Um, when I am successful or when I am at X milestone, you know, I'm more than happy to give back at that point. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how, I guess, both from the perspective of yourself and how you're willing to give back to, in, you know, in this case, specifically our community, but I'm pretty sure it's not just us. Um, but also, you know, when you're interacting with with other folks in the industry, devs, technical people who are, I presume, very busy people, but they're choosing to give back to, like, what's that mindset? And, and, and I guess why, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a controversial opinion, but I think I'm... I'm more of the opinion that everybody's selfish. Mm -hmm. And so uh, even if it's about paying it forward and so on, it is for selfish reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, there's a lot of, of course, philosophy and debate around this. Um, but I think that's okay um, because through those, through those selfish reasons, you can still have um, actions like uh, volunteering and, mm -hmm. and paying it forward, whether that's because you it makes you feel good or because you end up learning a lot from you know, not really charging uh, for mentorship uh, mm -hmm. because that actual mentorship is something that's maybe outside of your comfort zone or kind of somewhat outside your comfort zone and you're able to actually learn from that experience. Mm -hmm. So to me, like, if you want to look at it from a selfish perspective, that's okay. Yeah. Um, and that framework doesn't actually make it so that all, everything you do is really just hurting other people or not really advancing other people. Yep. Um, so whether you want to use the word capitalism or selfishness, ultimately it doesn't, it doesn't preclude um, actually paying it forward and giving back to the yep. community because ultimately it does come back in albeit somewhat intangible ways sometimes, yep. but it does come back uh, almost immediately depending on, and, and that allows you to pick and choose like, okay, maybe the way I'm going to mentor, I want to make sure that it also elevates me in some way, whether it's personally, mm -hmm. professionally, emotionally, whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. Look at it that way and that's totally okay. Don't be, don't be, don't feel guilty for having those selfish kind of thoughts mm -hmm. while you're thinking about volunteering your time. Mm-hmm. And does, do you think that wherever you are in your, your stage of startup or your career experience, does that matter in terms of, of you participating? That's a good question too. Definitely a big philosophy at Lighthouse Labs mm -hmm. um, for our students and our, our, our developers and scientists is um, you literally start code reviewing. Like one of the first things you do when you join our team is you pull, you review pull requests from um, people that have, uh, that have been working with us for a few years been you know, software, software lawyers like myself who've been uh, in, in the space for 15 odd years and you actually give feedback or ask questions. So it's not about like top-down mentorship. In fact, we have a lot of alumni that actually teach with us in our program, right? They mm -hmm. graduate and now they're teaching in our program. That's very cool. Wait, wait a minute. They're not, they haven't worked in the industry for so long. <laughs> How the heck can they teach uh, and help someone with a React problem or a Rails problem or a PyTorch problem or whatever it may be? Well, they've just gone through that material. They have the empathy of someone that's that's mm -hmm. not 15 years out. And they actually, in some ways, bring a very different perspective and right. empathy that someone like myself cannot do physically. Yep. So um, I think, no, I, I definitely think that it's more about like just-in-time learning and actually just-in-time yep. mentorship as well. So you could be only a few days ahead of someone, like literally an assignment ahead, and you could help yep. someone, can't you? Right. So why, why isn't that true for anything else in the workforce as well? Why is that only true in the classroom? It's probably even better because better than someone who did it 10 years ago. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like I can't even, for me to not understand, I can't empathize with some with someone who doesn't understand, let's say, arrays. Mm -hmm. 
right? But somebody who's just graduated and literally went through that experience a few days ago, a few weeks ago, can relate to that and, and bring a different perspective. That's, that's actually super profound. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit fascinated right now. Um, but as we, as we wrap up, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, you being a launch captain here. Um, members can choose to connect with you. What kind of topics or interests are you interested in most these days? Um, well, I mean, within technology, um, open source software is definitely very interesting. Federated software, um, mm -hmm. your, um, uh, what else? Um, I would say just like, uh, I would say automation is a big topic that I tend to read up on quite a bit. So whether it's robotic process automation or things of that nature, it's a big topic in Lighthouse, but also just, I think that's a, it's a big thing that's of course coming down the pipe mm -hmm. in both, you know, uh, in terms of like autonomous driving, but also automation that that's more within companies and making them more efficient. I think um, workforce mobility is an interesting topic. Um, of course, ties yep. in with education. So I think with all the stuff that's happening in the economy, there's going to be a lot of conversations around mm -hmm. career advancement, mobility within a company, hybrid roles within a company is an interesting topic for me. So not like a developer um, and a data scientist, but what is a citizen developer, a citizen data scientist, or you know, what are these hybrid roles? Um, do you have to be a developer to be able to write code? Um, I think no code, low code is here to stay now. I know mm -hmm. that just like VR, it's kind of gone through its uh, waves yep. where it's like, oh yeah, it's here to stay and then it's not. Um, I do think that um, no code, low code and that kind of, allowing anybody to be a maker and not really just not necessarily like um, taking away from developers or saying developers no longer needed, but actually the kind of work that they'll be doing and what other people it's will changes. be doing will change. Right. And be allowing a Sam to actually build mm -hmm. uh, not just websites, but web apps mm -hmm. is a thing that hasn't really fully happened yet with there's some, there's some like there's a gap. There's, yeah. There's a gap and there's some experiments there and some startups that are doing well. But uh, I think that's a big, big um, trend that we're going to see. Mm -hmm. Um, and then outside of technology, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm a flying enthusiast. Um, I've got my pilot's license. And Very so cool. if you nerd out, want to nerd out about general aviation, I'm, I'm down to do that as well as I'm starting to, to try and learn sailing, um, last, as of last so year. All so. vehicles or, or only la only air and water, no land. <laughs> no land, yeah. <laughs> I don't own a car. So there's that. <laughs> Very cool. Awesome. So, so definitely say hi if, if you want to connect with Crum. He, he's definitely he's around in the office too. So, I know some of you folks are are in the office. Def, definitely say hi to him. Um, for those of you that um, are, are again are joining us live or members at launch, um, this is another AMA, and we're open to to bringing on different guests every week. Uh, sorry, not every week, every every month. Samson just gave me a a, a mental look there. Um, but but next week we do have a workshop on talking about how to run your your company in the states as a simultaneously as the time you're running your company in Canada. Um, so definitely stay tuned for that. And the week after, we're having our huddle, our discussion group on how to how to build a company in this bear market. Um, so so definitely join us for that. Um, for those of you that are listening on this podcast publicly, maybe this is the first episode you've ever heard of, of Launch AMA or whatnot. Uh, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast. Um, you can find it anywhere that there are podcasts. Also give us a follow on Launch Academy HQ on, on Twitter and Instagram. If you're interested in getting these sessions live, like so many of our folks here, you can go check out our website, launchacademy.ca slash launchpad and see if it's interested in you. We only work with tech founders. Um, so if that kind of suits you, feel free to, to, you know, take a look on the website. So thank you very much for, for everybody's time and we'll see you again very soon. And thank you again, Karam, for, for joining us. Thanks for putting up with me. <laughs> not, not a problem. <laughs>